Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. We're in for a real treat this morning. Um, We've got Amy or Ewing speaking to us. Amy, I first met Amy when I was um, 20 years old and I was doing my degree and I, and I had the option to do um, um, my sort of post-grad. So when I chose to go, I, I met her and her now husband um, and just fell in love with them sort of instantly. These amazing people, they love God, really passionate about mission. So I chose to do my, um, my post-grad at the same uni they were at, just so that I could hang out with them and just get to know them and, and learn from them. And they have been friends, solid friends, ever since. Amy is one of the most, probably the most phenomenal communicator I've ever heard. She has an amazing ability to make, often, no pressure, um, <laughs> make really complicated things sound, she articulates them in a way that's really easy to understand. She is the um, European, Middle East and Africa director of uh, the Zacharias Trust, which basically means you just don't do Australasia and America. Yeah, pretty much the whole world then. Um, uh, the Zacharias Trust, she, uh, she's the director of the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, uh, her and her husband, Frog, and their boys planted Latimer Minster Church. And she is also the founder of Reboot, which is... Why don't you come and tell us really quickly about Reboot? So let's give, let's give Amy a really warm welcome. Just, Amy, just, um, just tell us really quickly about Reboot, because it's really amazing, important ministry. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. It's great to be here. So Reboot is... Um, uh, a ministry really aimed at teenagers, 12 to 18, um, and it's the design of it is to be a space for young people to articulate their questions and doubts about God and the Christian faith, the kind of questions that they're asked at school. Um, we noticed about five years ago, we were involved in a lot of university evangelism, and it felt like we're opening the front door, and hundreds and thousands of students are coming to Christ on campus. But meanwhile, the back door's wide open because young people who've grown up in the church haven't necessarily found um, rigorous answers to their questions and perhaps doubts and things have gnawed away and then at some point the whole thing's just fallen apart for them. So we started it uh, four years ago um, and I had faith for 100 teenagers thinking it's a bit niche, you know, apologetics and um, sort of thinking about your faith, but we had nearly 500 um, the first time we did it, and now it's all over the world. It's in Australia and Cairo and Africa and America, and here in the UK, we were just in um, Edinburgh and Belfast last, I think, two weekends ago, and London will be at the Westminster Central Hall in September. So if you have or know young people who that would benefit, or the website has loads of answers, so we have people like Professor John Lennox and... Um, others who are really, really amazing answering questions, yeah. Brilliant, Amy. Let's pray for you as you continue our series on money, sex, and freedom. Father, thank you so much for Amy. Thank you for Frog. Thank you for the boys. We want to pray for Amy, Lord, that you'd speak through her powerfully this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Bill. 
Um, I have to say that uh, when Pete and Sammy asked me to come speak on this particular date, they didn't tell me what the subject was before I, I said, yes, I happen to be free. Bill, can you just help me make this a bit higher? Is that all right? Um, yeah, I didn't know what the subject was going to be. So, yes, we're talking about sex this morning. And then the clocks went forward today. So not only are we talking about sex, it's also early in the morning. This is going very well for us. Um, but obviously a massively important subject um, before us today. And um, I think uh, we're sort of on holy ground when we're talking about this. And I want to acknowledge that... Um, in this room, um, our, just our personal experiences around this subject are going to be incredibly varied. And so I hope that um, you will be able to hear the voice of the Lord um, speaking as we, as we consider these things together. And obviously out there in the world, just the cultural landscape um, is shifting, is extremely challenging for this generation um, as they're seeking to make their way in the world and we're left as the church asking ourselves the question, do we have anything to say? Is there anything to offer that is meaningful in this cultural landscape um, today on this subject of sex? The story is told of a woman who was walking on a beach and she stumbled on a genie's lamp. So it's obviously a true story. She picked it up and rubbed it and the genie popped out and the amazed woman said, oh, am I going to get three wishes? The genie said, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, low wages and third world debt, you can only have one wish. They make it very, very good. The woman didn't hesitate. She reached into her handbag, produced a map of the world and pointed to the Middle East. She said, see these countries? I want them to stop fighting each other. That is my wish. The genie let out a sigh, looked at the map and said, listen, lady, those countries have been at war for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. It can't be done. Make another wish. So she thought for a moment and said, you know, I've never been able to find quite the right partner, one that's considerate and fun, likes to cook and helps with the cleaning, is attractive and gets on with my mum, doesn't watch sports all the time and is faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect partner. The genie let out a long sigh and said, okay, give me the map back. We're all searching for connection, aren't we? We're hoping that we're going to find connection with that other elusive, wonderful, perfect person. Well, Joan Collins, the great philosopher, put it like this. She said, my love life is like a piece of Swiss cheese. Most of it is missing, and what's there stinks. I thought that was rather good. It may surprise you to know that um, Google in 2012 and 2014 um, published their sort of most searched phrases. And in 2012 and 2014, the most searched phrase on Google was, what is love? In other words, the world's most powerful engine to, is telling us what we already know, that humanity is searching for love. We're searching for connection. There's this kind of hope and excitement around love and sex and relationships. But let's be real. In our context, there's also a darker side to the cultural moment we live in when it comes to sex. The Me Too hashtag has elicited this outpouring 
of um, people's just sharing their negative experiences of um, sexual behaviour, often unwanted sexual behaviour. And that seems to be backed up by research. So I just want to set a bit of a, a framework, um, a bit of a kind of landscape as to the cultural climate we're living in today. And then we're going to um, explore together what the, how what the Bible has to say contrasts with, with some of that. Okay, so I'm going to give you three headings if you're taking notes. And this is how um, sociologists are um, describing what this generation are facing. And the first heading is objectification. What does objectification mean? Well, it means construing an individual as an object, viewing a person as an object. And what um, sociologists tell us is that this is happening on, a, on an epic scale um, in our culture, but particularly when we look at adolescence, so when we look forward as to what's coming, um, young girls and women are assessed by physical attributes primarily and therefore are seen as sexual objects on a comprehensive scale. One writer writing about um, what it means to be an adolescent female in Britain today puts it like this, an entire gender exists purely to satisfy others' desires. Objectification. Second heading, self-objectification. Again, sociologists have noticed that because modern industrialised society chronically and pervasively objectifies the female body, this has led to many women coming to view themselves primarily through the lens of an external observer. So rather than having a kind of inherent sense of self and viewing the world from yourself so you're looking that way, for many women, self-objectification means taking a step away from yourself and viewing critically and analysing yourself as if through the lens of an external person. This has led to massive, um, massively negative effects, body shame, appearance anxiety, depression, disordered eating. And uh, one study in 2016 addressed how these two phenomena of objectification and self-objectification affected how women in general in society were perceived by others. And the authors concluded that focusing on a woman's appearance produced reduced perceptions of her competence. And by virtue of construing a woman as an object, perceptions of women as less human. That's the results of the study. This is the air your daughters, wives, girlfriends, nieces, mothers, this is the air they're breathing. This is the context. Third heading, sexual violence. The Guardian reported in 2016 on research from the Trade Unions Congress and the Everyday Sexism Project that 52% of women in the workplace reported experiencing unwanted sexual behaviour at work, including groping and sexual advances, 52% of women. Among women aged 16 to 24, this rose to 63%. Let that sink in. The majority of women in the workplace in Britain 
and a larger majority of women aged 16 to 24 experience this just at work when they're trying to earn a living for their family. And it's not only in the workplace. The Telegraph reported in 2015 on polling by YouthSite that one-third of female university students in Britain had endured a sexual assault. 31% had been the victim of inappropriate touching or groping. This is the context that we live and breathe in. This is the lived experience of not just people out there, but also the people sitting in here in the church. Our sisters, our mothers, our girlfriends, our wives, our nieces in the church and those we seek to reach. So as we talk about sex this morning and think about what God has to say to us and what the Bible has to say, I want to sort of scope out for us broadly what I see as the three rival narratives that we will be torn between this morning as we think about sex. There's this landscape of objectification and sexual violence, but there are also worldviews or narratives, stories into which we are being called to invest and live our lives, and between which we are going to be torn, even as followers of Jesus. And to, in that context, hear the voice of the Lord speaking to us, encouraging us, strengthening us, so that we can be, like Paul envisaged, those stars shining in the universe, shining in the darkness as we hold out the word of life. So the three narratives about sex that we're going to think about together are, firstly, materialism, secondly, religion, and thirdly, biblical faith. Okay, so let's begin firstly with materialism. Materialism um, tells us is a story about life and the universe, and it's the kind of big picture framework um, behind atheism. It tells us that everything can be reduced to matter. It's, a, it's the ultimate reductionism. Everything that is, is material. It is physical. There is nothing more to life than the purely physical. And so when we come to think about sex, for uh, the materialist, sex is ultimately about consumption. Because everything is purely material, people are matter, and so they are relatively disposable. Now, um, we may be very familiar with this, but it may surprise you to know that the Bible was written into a context where this kind of worldview was prevalent. The ancient Greeks and Romans viewed sex as similar to any other bodily activity like eating or sleeping. When you feel like doing it, you should just do it. Be careful not to overdo it, as with all appetites, but, you know, it's just a physical appetite like eating food or drinking something. And Paul cites that mentality when, um, in 1 Corinthians 6, quoting from the Greek culture when he says, food is for the body, it's just an appetite like food. And he's um, saying that's how people viewed sex. In other words... That Greco-Roman um, kind of worldview, very much like materialism today, says what I do with my body doesn't matter. There's no transcendent purpose. All there is is physical, so I may as well get on and just enjoy everything around me. Now, this material narrative, materialistic narrative will tell us things about ourselves. It will tell us 
Fill your appetites whenever you have them, including sex and eating and whatever they are. But it will also tell us that there are things you can do to have a better physical experience. In order to find more love and more sex, you need to present the best side of yourself to the world. Be better with the help of the self-help industry. That way you too could be lovable. Be thin, be rich, be successful. Present yourself well and find the best possible lovers along life's road. Consume as much sex as you possibly can. Fill your boots while you can and only settle down when you're older, fatter and uglier. Love is a consumer sport like shopping. Find what you like in life. Take a hold of it for a little while and when you're finished, move on to a better model. The materialist narrative, this story, will tell you if you are not consuming sex, you are missing out. You are less human. There's probably something wrong with you. You're probably undesirable in some way and you're wasting your life. That's what the materialist worldview story will tell you. Live for pleasure now. Consume as much sex as you can now. And if you are consuming sex, materialism will tell you there's no harm in it. What I want counts most, so I'm going to take as much pleasure as I can. And don't get too attached, unless you really, really want to, unless that's what, you know, is, does it for you. And then stay attached for as long as you want to, but when you fall out of love or you get a bit tired, your desires change. Just move on and find someone else. Does it sound familiar? That's the first story, materialism. The second narrative that is around us is the narrative of religion. Religion tells us sex is to be feared. You spend years and years being told not to have sex outside of marriage, to hold back, and so it can become something you're afraid of. In some religious contexts, sex is a means of domination is often the man has a kind of hierarchical power over a woman, and sex is an instrument of that power. Religion will tell you sex is dirty, and you may have been contaminated by it in some way. If you're a victim, you're still made to feel as if you are dirty. Or perhaps you're the scarlet woman, or the male player, who's defiled other people. Or in some way, you're someone who has failed to meet the mark and you have fallen into temptation. Or religion will tell you, you have successfully held on to your virginity, warding off all threats. And sexual purity can now be a source of religious pride for you, a kind of religious badge, a good work, that you can be, you know, you can polish it every now and then. You're very proud of it. And you hold on to it very tightly. Religion is a story that tells you that marriage is the idol you need to bow before. In order to have any position of significance or importance in a religious structure, you're going to feel that pressure to be married, to have had children, or your life is in some way the lesser, some way of failure. If you can find that husband or wife, he or she will fulfill you and you will finally have the religious status you deserve. If you're single, 
religion tells you. Work harder to be sexually pure. Take pride in your achievement of that. However, it may be that in secret you're consuming porn or having some kind of premarital sex. And if so, what you need to do is just try a lot harder not to. You need to ask yourself, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your willpower? You're, you're going to be told to be ashamed of yourself and live in shame and that you're somehow a waste of space. That's what religion will tell you. And if you're married, religion will tell you, trudge on. If you're single, there's an extremely wide variety of condemnation open to you. Okay, that's the second narrative. Remember I said, all of these three narratives are potentially going to harm us since we live in the real world. Let's, let's be honest about this. The first two can harm us. The third one, biblical faith, is the one we want to press into. But we're going to be affected by all of them. So, third narrative, biblical faith. The Bible teaches that sex is very good. Genesis 1 verse 31. The Bible tells us that God has given this amazing gift to be enjoyed within marriage. In the Bible, there's a whole book called the Song of Song Solomon. And it's filled with barefaced rejoicing in sexual pleasure. It's actually quite embarrassing to read it out in church. Biblical faith affirms the human body. Unlike materialism, biblical faith does not tell you this world matter is all there is. But biblical faith does tell you matter and the physical world are important. They're gifts from God. Our bodies are beautiful. Uh, Psalm 139 says, You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. And yes, uh, we have problems with our bodies. We live in a fallen world. And those problems, those issues are a sign that our bodies need to be redeemed. Unlike the materialist view of sex that it's just a physical appetite, though, the Bible tells us that our sexual desires, although broken and frequently idolatrous, God has given sex as a gift to the human race so they can be redeemed and they are good. But for followers of Jesus, our bodies are indwelt the Holy Spirit is in our bodies. So what we do with our bodies matters. Where we go, we take the very presence of the Trinitarian creator God of the universe with us. The Lord is interested in our bodies. He is for them and not against them. The body is for the Lord and the, bo and the Lord is for the body, says the Bible. We're just going to think about three ways in which um, sex in biblical faith um, is, is uh, sacred. So first, sex is sacred because it is literally creative. Sex is sacred because with God, it co-creates a new soul. Sex helps propagate the human race. We all know that. But it's right there in Genesis. Think about it this way. That staggering theological poetry of Genesis 1.27. The man and the woman are made in the image of God, male and female. He created them. 
in his image, is followed by Genesis 1.28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The first thing God ever asks people to do is have sex. Okay, just in case you're hearing out there in the world that, you know, the church and the Bible is really sort of down on sex and it's all really awful. No, this was God's idea. He calls the man and the woman to joyfully consummate their relationship and to be creative. Now, it's amazing. um, In the context there, the man and the woman are distinguished from the rest of creation in that they're made in the image of God. But there in Genesis... They are part of this kind of poetic pairing within creation. You see the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, this pattern of pairing emerging, mirroring the light and darkness, the waters above and the waters below, the earth and the sea, the evening and the morning, the sun and the moon, the day and the night. In the context of these paired unities of creation, God has designed male and female to come together. It's beautiful. It's transcendent. The Bible is not sort of paltry or just out of date in its approach to sex. There's beauty, majesty, and transcendence here. The eternal relationship that is the Holy Trinity is imaged in the relationship of the man and the woman. So, um, sex is creative in a biblical framework. But secondly, sex is epic. Sex is sacred because it's an analogy of the joyous, self-giving, pleasurable love of God within the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in relationship, in glorious devotion to each other. And sex between a man and a woman in marriage points to that love between the Father and the Son, as well as Christ and the believer. And the Bible is not embarrassed about celebrating that delight in sex. And it doesn't separate that from theology. It's not like, here's this sort of, you know, go and have that creative, enjoyable sex over there, but let's keep that very separate from God or talking about him. Sex is supposed to be wonderful because it's mirroring something of the, of, um, the relationship of the Trinity. In um, the Song of Songs... Um, you see this in the most amazing way, this open delight. One commentator writes this, the role of the woman throughout the song is truly astounding, especially in the light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who's the dominant voice through the poems that make up the song. She's the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. She boldly exclaims in chapter 5, verses 10 to 16, her physical attraction. Most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. Isn't that awesome? That sex in the Bible is good. It's beautiful, unashamed. Thirdly, biblical sex is covenantal. It's sacred because it constitutes a covenant renewal ceremony. 
A covenant is not a contract. It's not a sort of breakable legal agreement. A covenant is um, a lifelong promise to love or to commit, to walk together. A marriage in the New Testament is an image that God chooses to use to describe the covenant relationship between himself and his people, that unbreakable bond of love between a pair, unity and diversity, sameness and otherness, describing the beauty of a man and a woman in a marriage, but also of God with his people. So marriage is this kind of lifelong um, covenant unity is a, a significant biblical image, and that and purpose of sex within that to become one flesh meant completion of that kind of personal union, creating deep intimacy, oneness, and um, communion between two. Within a biblical framework, then, sex is a gift from God and it's designed to be beautiful, eyes wide open, mind blowing pleasure. Sex is powerful, it's a connection. And in the right context of a lifelong covenant, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's about unity and otherness. It is physical and body affirming, and it is metaphysical. It's a deep kind of language enabling a kind of meeting of minds. It's spiritual because it's an analogy of how God loves us, and it's creative, new life, and children come along because of it, and it is covenantal. It seals that enduring commitment. So for the married person here this morning, Enjoy the gift. Don't get bored or boring if you want to be a biblical Christian. Be faithful, pointing to that passionate, faithful love of God for his people. For the single person here this morning, what does this mean? You are fully human. Intimacy with God and others in a biblical framework is not dependent on having sex. Your body is a gift and you are invited into a kingdom adventure of freedom and grace where there is no condemnation. Abstinence from sex is a powerful and a beautiful thing, reminding the church and the world that we do not overinvest ourselves in anything besides the kingdom and that we do not live for materialism. Just like though we may have possessions, we don't live as if they're really ours. Our real wealth is in God. So Paul applies that to the principle of marriage and singleness. We're not to be either over-elated about getting married or overly disappointed about not being so. Because it's only Christ that fulfills us. The Christian gospel and the hope of the future kingdom directly dethroned idolatry of marriage. Christianity uniquely in the ancient world upheld single adulthood as a beautiful, purposeful, viable way of life. Prior to Christianity, nearly all religions and cultures made family and specifically childbearing a foundational cultural value. There was no honour without family honour, no lasting significance or legacy without physical heirs. By contrast, the early church 
specifically and purposefully, not only didn't pressure people to marry, actively encouraged people not to, as you see in Paul's letters, and supported widows who didn't, so they didn't have to remarry. Why? Because singleness was a powerful and prophetic sign of hope in the future of the kingdom and actually upheld a biblical view of sex in a really life-giving way. What a, what a counter-cultural blow to both materialism and religion. So in conclusion, three narratives. The first narrative, materialism, will tell you consume, consume, consume. This material world is all there is, so get as much sex as you can while you can. In John 4, verse 13, Jesus stood up and he said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. In other words, matter is not all there is. People are more than physical. And we're more than our physical appetites. Pursuing our physical appetites, according to Jesus, will make us hungrier and thirstier than we were in the first place. It's only by coming to him and receiving his water that that longing for intimacy can ultimately be satisfied. So my question this morning is, are you chasing a physical rush when you need to come to Jesus? He's the only one that can give that water that quenches the deepest thirsts. Have you been treated as an object for someone else's consumption? The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible's verdict over you is not the same as materialism's verdict. You're discarded. The Bible's verdict is you are beloved. The promise of Romans 8 is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus. Have you listened to the lie that if you're not bowing at the idol of material pleasure... And consuming sex, you must be unlovable, unattractive, wasting your youth. God is calling you to a greater adventure, a pursuit of him and his kingdom that materialists will never understand. But it is far greater and far more exciting. Embrace the life of the kingdom and the adventures he wants to take you on. Secondly, religion. Religion makes an idol of the status of marriage. But Jesus himself was single, as were many of the greatest Christians who've ever lived. If you're single here today, hear the affirmation of the Lord over you. You are honoured and beloved. You are a crucial, life-giving person in the family of God. Religion tells you if you've slipped up some way sexually, you deserve to be stoned. You are defiled and shamed. But the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, anyone who is in Christ, there is now no condemnation. The old has gone, the new has come. Do you need to receive that healing and grace, that affirmation of the love of God for you? Do you need to repent and turn away from idol worshipping, your own efforts to be better? And receive that empowering of the spirit to set you free from addictions. Religion coerces you 
and creates a context of domination and violence, do you need to be set free from that and to receive help and support to get out of a situation of control or abuse? Jesus can set you free and this biblical church community can support you to find safety and freedom in the love of God and material support to leave that sort of domination or abuse behind. Biblical faith then. Trust God with your marital status. Hear that sex is a good and beautiful gift far bigger than any of us and it's part of a vision, a biblical vision for human flourishing. And if today here you're married, restore your commitment to your spouse, the spouse God has given you, and to the gift of sex in the covenant of marriage, trusting him that he can make all things beautiful and new. Amen.